Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on connective tissue conditions and what we can do to treat our symptoms to live more fulfilling lives. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only, not for medical advice. Please check with your own providers before making changes to your routine. On today's episode, Savita Sandhu from Savvy Dietetics, located in Brisbane, Australia, is joining us to talk about hypermobility and our diets. Savita received her bachelor degree in nutrition and dietetics with honors at the Queensland University of Technology and underwent postgraduate training with the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. Savita also has an amazing Instagram page at Hypermobility Dietitian where she provides information and resources about food and micronutrients for hypermobile people. And a note out there to our American listeners, the dietitian is spelled with two T's, so it's D-I-E-T-I-T-I-A-N, if you're going to look her up. And there's also links to her page um, and her website in the episode notes for the show. Uh, Savita, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. And hello to all of our Australian listeners. Hi, Kerry. Thank you so much for that amazing welcome. And uh, yeah, it's great to talk to you from Australia. Definitely. We finally got this time change figured out. Um, It's it's very cool to be able to be talking from opposite sides of the world about hypermobility and diet. Certainly is. Yeah. Let's start back at the beginning. When did you first decide to become a dietitian? And how did you first learn about hypermobility? So interestingly enough, I probably actually became interested in nutrition and learned about hypermobility around the same time. So quite a while ago, I guess, starting with how I got into dietetics as a child, I guess, similar to so many of the people who have talked on this podcast before and probably experiences of people who are listening. um, I struggled with being really sick and tired all the time. So I guess I constantly had a post-nasal drip, some form of headache or earache, growing pain, and you know I was missing school a lot. So it got to the point where I was about 11 years old and my mum took me to see a nutritionist. Through that process, I went on an elimination diet. So basically removing a whole heap of foods and you know, usually for about four to six weeks and then putting them back in. And through that process, I discovered that gluten and dairy really didn't agree with me. So I removed them for a bit and my health improved dramatically. Really through that process, I realized that I was fascinated in the science behind how food and nutrition affects the body because I really couldn't believe how much of a difference just eliminating a few foods could make. So after removing those foods, that really did make such a big difference to pain levels, fatigue and gut issues. And, you know, that was really fascinating to me. And I guess the practitioner that I had as well did such an amazing job of explaining the interconnections between what was happening with my body and food. So really, since that point, I've been absolutely fascinated with learning more about nutrition and health. In terms of how I first learned about hypermobility, really by coincidence, actually, one of my best friends in primary school was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And that was after a few years of quite intense surgeries that weren't completely successful. And when she got that diagnosis, I remember Googling EDS and just being so excited and calling my mom over and being like, oh, wow, mom, that's exactly like you are. Because literally word for word on, I think it was like one of those WebMD websites, um, the symptoms that my mom was experiencing and, you know, had always talked about experiencing from when she was a child as well. 
So it's really interesting because, you know, I was maybe 12 at the time. And although, you know, since then I've had this understanding that my mom has been hypermobile and there's been hypermobility in my, you know, direct family, I really didn't join the dots that that's what I might have probably had until maybe a year ago. Um, so, you know, that's also really helped, I guess, having that background, because in the last year that I've been in clinic, I have been treating hypermobile people as well. So all of those experiences have really, really helped in that process as well. That's a fascinating story. And thank you for sharing it. And it, I relate so much to that. I mean, your description was almost exactly how I felt from 11, really onwards, mm-hmm. the post trip, the fatigue. Um, and it's, it's just amazing that you were able to get to a dietitian, not only who could help you with this elimination diet, but like you mentioned, who could explain what was going on and explain the mechanisms. And, you know, I know that that approach is not for all patients. Mm -hmm. Um, even I, myself, I used to joke that I preferred to believe everything going underneath on underneath my skin was magic. And I didn't want to (laughs) know. Uh, because it was too scary for me. Mm. But when I started to learn about those connections, they fascinated me. And it opened up this a whole new door of possibility of going from feeling like you're just at the receiving end of whatever medical practitioner you get, their information, their level of knowledge, to feeling a certain sense of being empowered to take more control and, and really investigate, you know, what works for my body and what makes me feel good and what doesn't. And it's, it's a really challenging process because some things, you know, you won't, they won't show up necessarily, especially when, when we get into nutritional deficiencies and things like that. Mm-hmm. Some other things you know, trigger you right away and they can be, there can be a real obvious connection, but really, yeah, kudos to you for, you know, following your curiosity and, and leaning into that and discovering so much and, and I think it's so interesting that you were aware of Ehlers-Danlos from such a young age and you were aware that your mother had this hypermobility, but you didn't make the connection to yourself. And I wonder, do you think that's because of the way like hypermobility gets portrayed, that it's often portrayed in sort of the people who are experiencing the most severe symptoms so you didn't relate to that? Or do you think your symptoms maybe didn't really kind of tip over until more recently, like, you know, later in life? Mm, Certainly. I think that's a really good question because um, I guess when I was younger, there was this, you know, there was always that, you know, recognition that there was hypermobility in the family. But as you said, it's, you know, I guess to be ticked for that Ehlers-Danlos box, what the doctors were looking for were those more significant symptoms, which I really wasn't ticking. Um, And I guess when I went through the process of getting a diagnosis from a rheumatologist, I initially actually got diagnosed with just an autoimmune connective tissue disorder. So there wasn't really, I didn't, you know, get the Biden score completed on me, even though I am quite flexible and tick quite a few of those boxes, um, which I am quite annoyed about still. But um, yeah, we got that diagnosis of autoimmune uh, connective tissue disorder and kind of left it at that until quite recently. And it's only really been through working with clients with hypermobility and, you know, kind of thinking in the back of my mind during these consults, oh, actually, I experienced that as well. And, you know, oh, yeah, actually, that ticks the box for me that um, I got up the courage to advocate for myself and actually go back and, you know, do some research and advocate for a diagnosis in hypermobility. Wow, that's incredible. And that's such a great story all around, you know, good for you for, you know, standing up for yourself. But 
it, it also reminds me, it harkens back to so many interviews I've had with professionals like yourself. Like I can think of a few physical therapists off the top of my head who learned about hypermobility and, you know, didn't make the exact connection to themselves until something um, kind of intervened. And mm. I think that speaks to how, like, I guess the, the most diplomatic way I can put it would be to say the incomplete picture of hypermobile life that's mm. out there. Um, because I certainly think the full spectrum of this condition is not, um, I think the HMSA does a wonderful job. I really like them. I mean, there's some groups out there doing amazing work and there's a lot of individuals doing some awesome advocacy, but in terms of like the public perception of what is hypermobility, I mean, I think most people really don't know what it is at all. Um, and even people who are in the know, I think a lot of people with like a casual or passing knowledge don't really appreciate the spectrum nature. And the fact that it seems like for many of us, there are like bodily stressors, whether it's an infection, you know, a stressful period in life, um, you know, not to say at all that these symptoms are psychosomatic, like, mm -hmm. no, I don't think that, but obviously, you know, being under in intense stress, like does impact um, the body, but it seems like there are these kind of triggering events that often kind of push people over into that more dysfunctional stage, you know, where they're encountering the medical system more. And so hopefully with the kind of amazing advocacy that you and so many out there are, are doing, you know, people will become more aware of hypermobility earlier in life so they can, you know, have an informed place to come from and, and know what their options are for working within their specific limitations and assets and, and amazing qualities too. So that's, that's a wonderful story. Certainly, exactly. And thank you. And also pushing for that diagnosis. Um, I don't know how it works in America, but especially in Australia is something that, I guess I support some of my clients with as well who are maybe just starting out on that journey of hypermobility because I guess that diagnosis can also be really important because with that it brings the access to different sorts of care as well and support. So for instance in Australia we have NDIS so the National Disability Insurance Scheme and through that participants can access some really incredible resources including healthy meal delivery, um, you know they can get their allied health consults paid for so lots long-term physiotherapy and dietetics as well included in that and you know all of those supports are so important as well and can have such an impact in improving someone's journey so um, I guess that's another part of um, you know helping clients through that process as well. That's fantastic I wasn't aware of that program in Australia and I'm not aware of anything um, like that in the U.S. I mean there is like sort of a, a general insurance but it, that sounds very detailed with the meal delivery and kind of the support and that kind of thing so that's that's wonderful um that that is taking is going on in australia and um yeah i hope you know we we end up with something like that but even and and i think you're so right getting to an accurate diagnosis is so important mm -hmm. um for so many reasons to be able to you know investigate to the extent you want to or not to be able to connect with other people like you or not you know just to make mm -hmm. those informed decisions and it reminds me of one provider said to me i can't remember which diagnosis i was in the process of getting worked up maybe it was mast cell or something like that but one provider said to me 
why do you like want this diagnosis? You know, there's no treatment for it. And I just thought like, but if people aren't getting diagnosed, how will there ever be treatments? Because exactly. <laughs> no, who has what to figure out where resources should be allocated. And so that's one thing, mm. but also just as a human, I want to understand myself better so I can, you know, consult with other people who are going through similar things and try to work through some of the issues that I had. So I was just kind of stunned at that, like, well, what's even the point kind of, you know, hand wringing or throwing the hands in the air reaction to that? Because I, I agree with you. I think accurate diagnosis is extremely important. And, you know, to that end, I really hope sooner than later, the the guidelines for diagnosing Ehlers-Danlos get sorted out because there are a lot of issues with them. And, um, you know, like the Toronto Good Hope did a study, the clinic there, um, looking at them. And yeah, I hope there's additional refinement. And it troubles me because my understanding is that hypermobility spectrum disorder does not have a diagnostic code in the Mm. U.S. Um, I'm not sure if there is one in Australia. Um, I'm not aware there is. Mm. What was that? I'm sorry. I'm not aware there is. No. Okay. Yeah. That's my understanding. And so I, I really feel for a lot of the people who are in the hypermobile spectrum kind of camp because you know, without a diagnostic code, there's not, you know, it's more difficult for doctors to treat it. A lot of doctors think that it's less severe than Ehlers-Danlos, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, there are people with hypermobility spectrum disorder that have, you know, lower levels of function and more symptoms, conditions than people with Ehlers-Danlos and vice versa. And there's just, you know, and a lot of people out there are talking about this now on social media that there really is, you know, more alike than unalike between hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos and this HSD, this sort of new carve out that came out in 2017. Um, And yeah, it would be nice for those guidelines to be peer reviewed too by, you know, others kind of in the medical field to kind of get to, um, yeah, just, just more clear insights there. But um, Certainly. And even, I guess, acknowledging the other coexisting symptoms that go along with the joint hypermobility. So I understand like in the Biden criteria, there's the chronic pain aspect, but I'm really looking forward to the day, I guess, um, as you are as well, that, you know, other factors. So I guess I'm a dietitian, so I love talking about all things digestive system, but I'm so looking forward to when digestive symptoms are included in that um, some sort of diagnosis criteria as well. Because I guess the other problem is with that is that if we don't get a diagnosis, what I see so much in clinic, and I guess I've experienced myself as well, is overwhelming imposter syndrome. Because we think, oh, do we have this? Don't we have this? I relate to so much of, you know, what you know these people online say, but then, you know, maybe I don't meet all the criteria. And, yes. you, know, that itself, you know, that itself can just stop someone from, you know, seeking out medical practitioners who, you know, know about these things or, you know, accessing, say, hypermobility physiotherapists because they're not sure if they do have hypermobility and, you know, things like that as well. So I think, you know, getting a diagnosis can be incredibly affirming as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you currently work at Savvy Dietetics. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your practice is like and what services you provide in general and specifically what kind of insight and help you can provide for hypermobile people? 
Certainly. So just over a year ago now, I set up my clinic Savvy Dietetics. Uh, so it's a dietitian and a private practice in Brisbane, Australia. But uh, I also do help clients around the world as well through telehealth, um, which is one of the great benefits of Zoom nowadays um, or, you know, services like that. And I guess I mainly help people with their nutrition. So uh, usually starts off with an initial consult where we have a really good look at someone's medical history, um, you know, nutri nutrient deficiency symptoms, digestive symptoms and diet. And we can kind of come up with a bit of a plan of how to help them and if there's anything else we need to look into. So uh, through that, I guess, um, you know, go down so many avenues, you know, can help people with everything from, you know, meal planning and the practical side of that to, you know, elimination diets and, um, you know, improving their digestion overall also with gut health and improving the gut microbiome. So it's really varied, which is lovely. And I guess I also help people with a couple of different conditions as well. So as we've talked about, I love working with hypermobile people, but even just with, I actually started out just advertising myself as someone who helps people with burnout um, and chronic pain, which are also areas that I'm really passionate about. And of course, overlap quite a bit with hypermobility as well as women's health as well. Absolutely. Yes. I think you're speaking to a large portion of the audience right now mm. in some way or another. Yeah. That, that, those categories really hit a lot of modern life um, <laughs> and the challenges. And, and again, kudos to you for leaning into those challenges because a lot of providers um, are really either intimidated or they don't feel like they have the time, you know, to, to lean into these really complicated conditions. And the kind of resource you're providing sounds like exactly what, you know, myself and so many other hypermobile people I know really need. And, um, and that's just a reminder to mention, you know, a, a lot of listeners have reached out. Um, I, I love talking with listeners. It's one of my favorite parts of doing this and it's just, it's been so great. And so always feel free to reach out and email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com if you ever want to chat. Um, Cause it's, Nice to have people who kind of get what, what you're going through. But yeah, kudos to you for working on these really complicated conditions and that kind of breaking it down and, and working on these things sounds so important because it's definitely something that I've struggled with and that I've heard from many others is difficult because, you know, you start to go through the the foods that you're used to eating and you know you hear don't eat this don't eat that don't don't mm. eat this well down to like well what's left you know and there there can be then sort of a sense of you know fatigue with like following a very strict diet and then you know it, you can kind of indulge on the bad things which when you it's like not working out and so I think having someone guide you through you know that process is so important. Thank you, Kerry. And exactly, I think um, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's, uh, you know, such a common thing that I see in initial consults. People come to me and they say, look, I've got all of these diagnoses and, you know, I've done some Googling and, you know, for this condition, I can't eat these foods. For that condition, I'm not meant to eat these foods, but these foods are good. And they basically say, all of the foods conflict. I've got no clue what I'm doing. And it's all just so absolutely overwhelming and difficult. So I think it's really um nice, I guess, to be able to just uh, be there with someone, help them take that step backwards and see things from a bit of a more of a big picture perspective and just really go back to basics. Because I think what I'd love to, um, I guess, highlight throughout our chat today is that, you know, hypermobility nutrition doesn't need to be complicated and we can really make it, um, you know, 
easy one step at a time approach where you are moving in the right direction and where hopefully it doesn't add too much stress to your life. Definitely. That sounds exactly like what so many people need, hypermobile or not. Um, And it reminds me of this book I read, I think when I was in high school, so quite a while ago now, um, called Stumbling on Happiness. And um, it's by Dan Gilbert. I think he's at possibly at Harvard. I'm not sure. Um, But um, and I know someone who read it recently and pointed out a lot of things that were a little questionable about it. But um, one thing that stuck with me is he, he talked in that book about the abundance of choice and how like we think having more choice leads to a bigger ability to optimize our happiness. So I think the example he used was like salad dressings. Like if you have a hundred salad dressings to choose from, you kind of assume, well, there's a perfect salad dressing out there for me and it's up to me to choose that. And in reality, there's like no salad dressing that's going to, you know, radically change your life. Like there is no perfect mm. salad dressing, um, you know, and our tastes vary and all of that. But this kind of paralysis of, of choice of having so many options. And when it comes to food these days, you know, that's kind of the, the paradoxical side. On one side, it's great that we have access, you know, through the Internet and, you know, new markets bringing up even in person to all kinds of different food from all over the world and different things with micronutrients and, you know, different supplements and all this. But on the other side of that can be that feeling of paralysis of like, where do I start? Because, you know, I try this or I try that it doesn't work out or, you know, it makes me feel worse or something. And you just feel lost in the sea of, of choice. And so it, it seems really imperative to have somebody, you know, really knowledgeable and compassionate and caring and curious to be able to help guide through that wilderness of choice, I guess. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. And that's, an, yeah, that's, I love that um, analogy with the salad dressings as well. I might um, steal that one. That's really good. Um, but no, I think exactly what you said. Yeah. So, yeah. So we talked, we touched on a few of your interests, including hypermobility, digestion, food intolerances, women's health, chronic fatigue and pain, autoimmunity, um, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, burnout, uh, mental health, irregular menstrual cycles, and more. Um, and first of all, that's a lot. So congratulations on having such diverse interests. Although, like we've talked about before, there's a lot of overlap between a lot of these things too. And, I, and again, I think what you're so brilliant at is being able to look at that bigger picture and and keep looking and and, you know, keep working to kind of expand you know your skill set um and so many of the issues that you you focus on are key issues that do impact hypermobile people um and so it's so great that you have this wide focus um and and many of us know many of these conditions are inextricably interlinked and so it's really fantastic that these are your areas of interest um, let's break down this a little bit and start with the diet and mast cell activation in particular. What are and I know it's really hard to talk about this because mast cell manifests in so many different ways, um, mm-hmm. even though there are some common trends. But what are your general observations from working with people with mast cell activation syndrome, and what types of assistance can you and your practice provide? 
Certainly. So I think that's a really good place to start. And I think as you were saying as well, and as we've said, it does sound like quite a few different areas and quite a lot, but you know, that's what commonly coexists with hypermobility. So, um, and I think as we, you know, start to, you know, have a bit of a chat today, we might find some common threads between the strategies as well. Because often, you know, the wonderful thing about nutrition is that, you know, a similar set of strategies can help to reduce the burden of a number of different conditions, which um, really takes the burden off as well and is quite good. I think just to note before we jump into the mast cell, I also like to practice under the belief that really anyone that I see with hypermobility is also going to be on that spectrum of dysautonomia, so like uh, conditions like POTS and um, MCAS to some degree as well. Because, um, you know, even though you might not have a diagnosis, I, you know, um, more often than not see elements of all of those um, in the people that I see in clinic. And I guess, as you said, you know, mast cell activation is so varied. Uh, but the way that I usually explain it to clients is, you know, mast cells are a type of white blood cells, which often congregate in connective tissues. And inside them, they contain lots of little water balloon like packets. And, you know, they're filled with histamine and lots of other chemicals. And, you know, histamine usually is one of those um, responses in the body that, you know, when something happens, you know, a mast cell might fire, you know, say one water balloon at that um, stressor in the body. And what that does is it helps to open up the blood vessels to allow more white blood cells to that area to then reduce the inflammation. But I guess in mast cell activation, what happens is that those water balloons um, are often you know, thrown out way too readily. So any slight trigger can cause us to bomb ourselves with histamine and other inflammatory chemicals. So of course, those triggers can be anything from like environmental toxins and um, you know, fumes to just stress, food triggers. Um, and I guess the list goes on. You can probably yeah, think of a few more as well. And I guess, as you said as well, the symptoms are so varied. So I guess in the ones I look for in clients, uh, we'll start with gut issues because um, with dietetics, multiple food sensitivities and reactions are really, really common. So that can be all the way from just, you know, experiencing discomfort with certain foods, nausea, bloating, potentially vomiting as well, all the way to, you know, starting to feel discomfort in the esophagus. So conditions like eosinophilic esophagitis, all the way to anaphylaxis. So I think with mast cell activation or, you know, any of the main conditions associated with the hypermobility, it's all on such a large spectrum. So um, we've got to be quite open-minded in the way that we kind of see the different symptoms and how they manifest. So I guess food reactions are one side of things in terms of other digestive symptoms, as we've kind of said, bloating, nausea, reflux is also really common too that I see. In terms of the skin manifestations, so um, of course, skin rashes and hives, and that can be in reaction to um, you know, a variety of different things or foods, also reacting to cheap metals, uh, different chemicals, fabrics. Um, and I think I heard on one of your podcasts a while ago, um, one of the wonderful guests that you had on mentioned multi-organ inflammation. And since then, that's also something that I've been looking out to for in clients. So even to the point of you know, extra polyps or growths, so, for example, if you've had a colonoscopy um, and they've found excess bowel polyps, that could be potentially related to mast cell. Also, things like polycystic liver, fatty liver or polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS. On top of all of those things, we then, I guess, have the normal or general histamine-like symptoms that you'd take an antihistamine for. So things like having really snuffy sinuses, feeling congested, lots of mucus or a post-nasal drip, headaches and migraines, insomnia, 
um, potentially car sickness too. And I think just to finish that list off, um, also there's been some interesting connections as well between ADHD and MCAS and potentially thinking that MCAS can cause some hyperactivity as well. That's such a great overview. And yeah, it's so, this is such an emerging field because my understanding, and I could be wrong on the date, I'm feeling a little bit foggy today myself, but um, I think mast cell activation might've only been named as a condition in like 2003 or something, you know, very, very recent history when it comes to, um, not certain on the date, but um, when I, when I did see it, I was shocked at how recent it was, especially because they seem to play such a critical immune regulatory role. So even for people that don't have mast cell activation, like these cells seem very important. And I I liked what you said that, you know, any kind of uh, um, like disturbance or when these mast cells get activated, it can cause us to bomb ourselves with these chemicals. And that's really what it feels like. You know, I, I relate to that. Like this really the idea that your body is under attack by its own cells and in a way that's trying to be protective um, you know, it's, it certainly seems to have a, a purpose to it, um, but it can be really uncomfortable and really, really difficult. And I think part of the challenge in all of this is there's so much discussion around, um, you know, histamine and tryptase gets a little bit of the discussion, but my mm. understanding is that mast cells, you know, carry a lot more mediators beyond those. And so we're really only beginning to understand what mast cells are and what they do, you know, let alone how to treat them and and get them into a more calm state. Certainly. And I didn't know that, yeah, if mast cell activation was only named that as that, you know, probably around 20 years ago, we've probably got so much, you know, so, you know, so far to go in terms of, you know, understanding more about these conditions and, you know, learning about all the other roles that the different mediators have. But, you know, I can't wait to see the research that comes out in the next I guess the next 20 years from now because I'm sure um, you know down the track we'll be able to find some answers for that and definitely learn a lot more and probably see things in a completely different light as well which I'm looking forward to. Yeah absolutely um, so um, I, and apologies if we already touched on this but um, so in a nutshell the the gut microbiome I guess is there can you give a little bit of an overview on how that relates to MCAS and diet? Certainly. So I guess in terms of diet and MCAS, I really love to emphasize the gut microbiome because it has such a massive role in influencing the burden of this condition. Um, And I guess from a dietary perspective as well within my scope of practice. So I guess in terms of what the gut microbiome is, like, have you ever had anyone on the podcast um, talk much about the gut microbiome or go into depth about what it does or what it's about? A bit, but not really in detail. So please feel free to start there. Full detail, yes. Wonderful. So I guess the way I explain it to clients is, well, with our digestive tract, it starts with us eating food in our mouth. That goes down our esophagus to our stomach, which starts to break down the food, then to our small intestine, where a lot of the nutrients are extracted. And that then travels along to the large intestine, which we usually think of that as a place where our bowel motion forms before it comes out of us. But what not too many, or I guess what's now growing in recognition is that there is a massive collection of bacteria in the large intestine. So to the point that there's 10 times the number of bacterial cells in our gut than our human cells. So for every one human cell we have, there's 10 bacteria chilling out in the large intestine, which is quite a chilling thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
And what's really interesting about that as well is that, um, you know, it's estimated now that up to 70% of immune cells lie there. So that's a figure that's been floating around in some, um, you know, online and some research papers. I'm not quite sure how they came up with that, but definitely a lot of our immune cells and immune function um, is mediated by those bacteria in our gut. And on top of that, many of our brain chemicals, so you know, things that were thought to be brain chemicals like our serotonin, dopamine, and GABA are also made by the gut microbiome too. So really in the last 10 years, we've just been starting to learn more about all the different roles the gut can have. So saying that, we can start to see how important the gut is for any sort of inflammatory condition or um, you know, even just overall well-being and physical and mental health. So in terms of... Yeah, it's incredibly fascinating. And it reminds me of this book that I've been meaning to read forever that I feel like I finally mm. need to buy and get because it is uh, initially it's disturbing to think that there's 10 times more bacteria than human cells in our gut. Like you said, it's just a little like, ooh, that's strange. But in thinking about it more, I, I and I wonder about this, I think about words a lot and what kind of meaning is conveyed with different words. And I wonder if bacteria haven't gotten a bit of a bad rap because bacteria starts with the same, you know, sound mm. as bad. <laughs> and, and beyond that, even if that's sort of not at the heart of it, when we hear about bacteria, it's almost virtually always in the context of disease. You know, when it runs amok, we don't really hear about the role it plays every day in keeping us alive and digesting our food and doing all kinds of lovely things for us as well. So they're, they're kind of vilified in a way and don't get credit for the good that they do. Certainly, certainly. And, you know, to the point that the, you know, the way that a lot of us view the gut microbiome is that, you know, it's an ecosystem. It's the same as a garden or a rainforest. And it's that, you know, you need that balance of bacteria there. And, you know, these are the things that keep us alive and help us regulate our immune systems and stay happy and healthy. So uh, definitely, you know, as a dietitian, my job is, you know, really just to help people appease their gut microbiome and, you know, that can help improve their health in turn. But I definitely agree that they've definitely gotten a bad rap uh, for a variety of reasons over the, um, the last few years. Yeah. And so in terms of things that are good or bad for it or the things that might help with MCAS, are there kind of general observations that you've noticed in your practice and your education? Yeah, so I guess in the research, the, the food of the good bacteria in the gut microbiome is that sticky, gooey, soluble fiber. So soluble fibers found a lot in things like if you think of chia seeds, if you've ever had like a chia seed and it's got stuck in your teeth and it's got that kind of gooey coating on the outside, mm-hmm. or if you've had flax meal that's say, um, you know, swelled up in something or um, psyllium husk. Mm-hmm. They're all soluble fiber foods. So I guess fruits and veggies are also really great sources of soluble fiber, whole grains, um, legumes as well. So all of our beans and lentils, really just a lot of whole foods. So all of those sorts of foods help to nourish the gut microbiome and produce those good effects. Whereas, you know, if we're stressed or if we have a diet lower in those foods or um, conversely higher in processed foods, added sugars, uh, refined oils, those are the things that can then shift our gut microbiome, which I guess research over the last decade has shown that has a not so great impact on immune system and overall health. I guess specifically for MCAS, there's a few different reasons why MCAS can then interplay with the gut microbiome. Um, and I guess with MCAS as well, 
we can really start to get an exacerbation in symptoms when the amount of histamine in our body, whether that's, you know, from MCAS um, releasing that histamine or other sources, exceeds our capacity to clear it. So that's named as histamine overload. So in MCAS, uh, firstly, our gut bacteria can actually produce histamine. So the not so good ones contain something called the HDC enzyme, which can take normal protein histidine and then convert that into histamine, increasing the histamine load in our body. So, you know, if we're stressed, if we've got inflammation and not eating so well, our body can actually produce more histamine through that mechanism. I guess going hand in hand with that, when we have more histamine, we get more inflammation in the gut. And, you know, if we've got stress, if we've got not so great bad, or, you know, bad gut bacteria, that can also create more inflammation. And what happens there is that low grade inflammation along the gut lining reduces the amount of an enzyme called DAO, which effectively takes the histamine, dismantles it and chucks it in the bin and helps to break it down. So we kind of get this um, balance where we're creating more histamine, we're not breaking it down, which can then drive that histamine overload. And I guess in term, just to put the cherry on the cake, when we do get more bad bacteria, they have this inflammatory lining in them, which when that breaks, it releases and causes even more inflammation to the gut, I guess, driving those processes further. So we can kind of see then, um, you know, if we're having lots of foods that are high in histamine and then if our gut on top of that, which necessarily it isn't a bad thing to have foods high in histamine, uh, it can just be one of those pieces of the puzzle that, you know, if we've got histamine overload, it can be sometimes helpful to reduce that, but we can go into that um, a bit more if you'd like. Yeah, it seems to be about this balance at the end of the day. Mm. For many patients, you know, obviously for some people, you know, there are some things that they just can never have, but, and that's part of the, kind of mystery of MCAS and something I've noticed, like there are some foods that I've eaten with no problem, but, and I've heard it described as a, a histamine bucket, but a histamine mm -hmm. overload, you know, makes sense too. Like if you're already at maximum capacity for the histamine you can be dealing with, you know, I, I'm thinking particularly for me, bananas, pineapples, like, you know, I, I'll go long stretches where I could have a little bit of that, but then sometime I'll have it and I, I feel like it hurts in my mouth. Like my mouth feels mm -hmm. like it's swelling in reaction to that. And it's like, well, how could I be fine with a banana one day and another day it's, you know, causing me like, ugh, I'm just like, I'm kind of disturbed even just thinking about that feeling because it's so uncomfortable. But, mm. um, and that's like the tip of the iceberg. That's like the easiest, I guess, you know, symptom to deal with. But um, yeah, it can be kind of perplexing. Do you find that patients respond well to the diamine? Is it diamine oxidase, the DAO enzyme treatment, like the supplementation mm. or working to build their own nat natural stores? That's a really good question. That's something that I haven't actually played around with that much, but I've been meaning to look into. So um, if you want, I can cover the way that I usually, I guess, go about treating MCAS with clients. Sure. So, yeah, um, I guess, you know, if you know, it's such an overwhelming you know, area to treat because I guess the first port of call is often, or the first thing, I guess, when we Google MCAS that often comes up is a low histamine diet. But as we kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking, Elimination diets are incredibly intensive and they require massive lifestyle change. And it's not just a case of cutting those foods out. It's then what do we replace them with? How do we still meet our nutrient requirements? So I like to take a bit more of a gentle and graded approach. And the first thing that I usually tackle is nutrient deficiencies. So I think the really interesting thing is that when our mast cells release 
um, you know, their substances and, you know, histamine included, they also release a lot of zinc, which kind of drives a zinc deficiency. And there's also been some other bits of research that suggest potentially people with hypermobility are at more risk of nutrient deficiencies, so particularly zinc deficiency. So um, I really like to focus on zinc for MCAS because zinc is also really important for stabilizing mast cells, so for um, reducing how much they um, let go of their substances and degranulate. Yeah, thank you so much for pointing out um, the zinc connection because that's actually how I learned about you in the first place. You posted some great information about zinc and it was applicable to what I was experiencing and I started looking into it further and then I noticed the research from EDS Expert Patient on Instagram and Fiona My EDS and they've been posting a ton of great content about the research that's been done on zinc and it's just it's incredible how much of a role it plays in so many processes so um yeah that's just so important to highlight and so like yeah thanks for you know leading off with that because that it's it's like a new window and it's really exciting to me to learn about zinc because it's something that i've for whatever reason it hasn't been you know as front and foremost in my mind in diet and supplements, you know, I've taken zinc here and there, but never really noticed much. But I think I was taking a, a different kind, like I'm on a different kind now that I'm hoping is going to be more helpful. But when I learned about what foods contain a lot of zinc, oysters, red meat and pumpkin seeds, I was, you know, I immediately thought, oh, no, I'm really in trouble because I don't regularly eat any of those things. And so it really seems like it's easy to get a zinc deficiency and vitamin C, like especially with our modern diets. Certainly. And that's exactly it. If, you know, we're tired and we're, um, you know, a little, you know, we're unwell, it's firstly going to be a lot harder to access and prepare good quality food. And then on top of that, if we've got mast cell activation and our mast cells are constantly letting go of our precious zinc to supply, we can certainly get stuck into this snowballing cycle. So that's why I like to focus on nutrient deficiencies, including zinc to begin with, because it's just one of those things where having a good quality supplement, um, you know, at a good dose, uh, can really help to start to break that cycle and, you know, reduce the mast cell activation and, you know, which then, you know, if you're feeling a little bit better, you might have more capacity to then have a look at your diet and make some changes from there. Absolutely. And those little, you know, I, I like, I ascribe to the theory and I'm, I can't remember who I read it from first. I know I saw it in a presentation, so apologies to whosoever idea this was, but that you look for 10% benefit here and a 10% benefit over there. And not to look for like the sort of magic pill or the magic solution that's going to make you feel significantly better, even though I have heard reports, even from listeners of this podcast, that certain things have made them feel 40% better or, you know, they've gotten big leaps. But for most people, like finding those small gains, like can, um, you know, kind of pay forward into being able to have more capacity to address other things. So even if it seems small, if it if it allows you to get another gain or, you know, get something else under control, you know, it's all part of this really intricate puzzle. And, um, and that that just makes me wonder. So when you're supplementing with zinc, I've heard that there's like, ideally a ratio between zinc and copper to keep mm -hmm. in balance. So do you like, you know, regularly check those levels or are there kind of signs to look out for if you're getting too high on the zinc or too high on the copper or how does that Certainly, work? Certainly, that's a really good point. So um, 
I guess in terms of blood tests in Australia, I sometimes get copper tested in people. Uh, it's often one of those ones that the doctors really don't want to put on the blood test because it's hard to get included by the government. So for people to get um, free blood tests out of that and the doctors need to be really careful in, you know, why they die or why they send people for those sorts of blood tests. Um, from my understanding, the optimal ratio of zinc to copper is one to one. So you want to have kind of similar levels. I know other health professionals though prefer, you know, one zinc to 1.5 copper. But I guess the thing to note is as well that from my understanding, a lot of people have higher levels of copper to zinc in today's society because um, even as I'm sure we can talk about as well with female hormones, for instance, um, you know, higher levels of estrogen are going or for example, high levels of histamine drive estrogen up and estrogen in turn drives copper up. So um, that's something that we can see in a lot of hypermobile people as well. So there's lots of reasons why copper is driven up and zinc is driven down. But I think what's really important is that, as you said, we do test these things regularly, which is where it gets really tricky to, to find health professionals that are on your side with these things and will help you get you know, these tests and interpret these tests and you know, um, access good quality supplements and you know, the right dose with the right types of nutrients in them can be really, really tricky. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm I'm just starting to think of all the like spider web possibilities branching out and how complicated this is, must be because it, it's such a balancing mm. act. And, you know, I, I often feel like having hypermobile ailers downloads is like playing whack-a-mole, like that game, like for kids <laughs> where you have a little mallet and, you know, which is a very weird game, you know, to begin with. Mm. But, but it's like playing that game, but there's just more and more of the little creatures popping up like it's not a confined set like the game is you know it's like it just keeps expanding it feels like and so um yeah again you know kudos to you for having the um the interest and the curiosity to keep digging into these things and you know and stay staying up on the research and and again fingers crossed hoping that more research will kind of illuminate more clear protocols and ways of addressing these things. And you highlighted another important issue, which is that, you know, getting these things covered, you know, by whether it's the insurance, you know, whoever the, the payer is, can be a really difficult challenge. Um, that's, that's a piece of this puzzle, too. And so there's kind of an administrative piece of this, you know, besides just the, the biological and, and all the complicated nature of, of that, you know, part of it. So certainly and you know we've already under so much you know generally people with hypermobility are under much more financial stress with all the appointments we have to go to and tests mm -hmm. we have to do so really with my practice I try and um, you know get around those in as many ways as possible um, and just do the tests that are most um, you know gonna show the or, you know most important and um, most necessary and try not to do anything that's um, you know not necessary as well to try and cut down costs but in terms of zinc uh, supplementation, in terms of dosing, where I'd kind of sit with that, of course, checking in with health professionals first mm -hmm. is usually looking for 25 milligrams of zinc per supplement dose. And, um, you know, usually forms like zinc citrate or picolinate are really well absorbed. Whereas on the other hand, you know, there's something called zinc oxide, which is just completely not absorbed by the body pretty much. Um, so looking at that either once or twice a day. But of course, checking in with health professionals, because that can interact with medication as well. And that dose might not suit everyone. Mm -hmm. And I have heard that some points in our life demand more zinc. Um, and this is kind of anecdotal. So I'm getting out on a limb here, mm. too. But I've learned that like, 
you know, going through hormonal changes or, you know, periods of stress, like there could be sort of an, an increased demand. So really important to check in with, you know, your own providers, you know, and I know that's really difficult for a lot of listeners and something, you know, that's difficult for even for me. So, um, you know, it's, it's really good to, you know, do things at, as an individual level, but it's good to know of those kind of baselines as well too yeah but even like um you know a lot of the time i try and in initial consults i also ask people about the symptoms they're experiencing and that can also lead some more insight into whether they might have a zinc deficiency mm-hmm. so for example really common symptoms that you know anyone can kind of try and have a look at on themselves are if you look at your nails uh, if you see any like white dots or lines on your nails that's one of the symptoms of zinc deficiency as long as as well as nail ridges so really harsh um, almost like uh, lines on your nail um, and the feeling of what your nail feels like. Uh, on top of that, you know, any sort of, I mean, these also overlap with just general hypermobility syndromes as well, but skin bruising, poor wound healing, problems with being sick all the time, uh, mental health struggles, they can all be related to a zinc deficiency well, um, on top of, you know, also having a metallic taste in your mouth and poor digestion. So there are just some other things to look out for as well. And if you suspect that you might be zinc deficient from there, uh, you can often, you know, then go to your doctor and say, hey, I'm experiencing these symptoms. Could it be potentially worth getting a zinc test as well and just checking where those levels are just because I've also got hypermobility and I'm at a bit of a higher risk as well. Mm -hmm. So that's another way to go about it. Yeah. And we hear a lot about the low histamine diet versus, you know, low FODMAP diet. There's a lot of Mm-hmm. different diets out there and it it's again like we talked about earlier it can be really overwhelming to know where to start or if you start on one of those and it's not really giving you benefits after some time it can be disheartening do you have thoughts on you know from your observations working with your clients which diets seem to be you know more effective or is this really a purely individual thing Definitely. I have a lot of thoughts about this. So I think um, both of those, like a low histamine and a low FODMAP diet, as I said, are quite intensive. So just to start out with, um, I think even what I call a general diet tidy up can really, really help. Because as we kind of talked about before, the gut microbiome has such a big impact. So even just making sure that the types of foods that we're eating are going to be nourishing the gut microbiome. So gradually increasing soluble fiber um, and other beneficial foods. So for example, if you're not getting enough veggies, trying to get more of those in, whether it's by keeping some frozen veggie bags in the freezer, um, you know, cooking more soups and stews where those are easier to get in. And um, also making sure as well, because often, you know, hand in hand with MCAS, we're going to get some digestive symptoms as well. So making sure food is easy to digest. So I love recommending, you know, warm and cooked food where it's broken down a bit and a lot easier for your body to extract the nutrients from. So from there, if you kind of do a bit of a general diet tidy up, um, you know, start to eat a bit better, start to focus on having regular meals throughout the day and not skipping meals, if that's not giving you enough benefit and, you know, you're looking at nutrient deficiencies, supplementing with zinc, Uh, Vitamin C is also really amazing to supplement with. So it's also a mild mast cell stabilizer and it helps your body clean up histamine as well. Um, So usually with vitamin C, you can do a thousand milligrams once or twice a day. Uh, That's really good too. Then that's where we often turn to look at something like a modified low histamine diet or a low FODMAP diet. Um, And it's interesting because when we look at the foods you can and can't eat with those diets, they're quite opposite. But uh, with a low FODMAP diet, that cuts out 
uh, certain types of carbohydrates in foods, which our gut bacteria eat and can cause digestive symptoms. And interestingly enough, a low FODMAP diet, even though it doesn't cut out um, histamine-containing foods, does, really, does significantly reduce histamine load in the body. And that's thought to be due to the gut microbiome impact. I guess the thing is though, oh, sorry. No, that's fascinating. Yeah, wow. Mm, really, really interesting. And, you know, it's had consistently good research showing that if you've got gut symptoms and you do a low FODMAP diet, so that's removing those FODMAP containing foods for four to eight weeks and then gradually one at a time popping them back in, that, um, you know, your gut symptoms will be significantly less. I guess the trouble with a low FODMAP diet is because you are cutting out a lot of the carbohydrates that feed uh, not just, I guess, the bad bacteria, but also the good bacteria, it can negatively impact the gut microbiome. And um, what can happen as well is that we pull foods out of the diet and then people just really don't tolerate them, putting them back in. Um, so whether that's like, you know, onion and garlic, um, you know, other fruits and vegetables containing these things, beans, can be quite individual but people can come out the end with a couple more things that they're avoiding and um, it can impact gut microbiome so that's just something to keep in mind too and that you know to do a low FODMAP diet with a professional who's trained in it who can help minimize that impact as well and ensure that you're eating as many foods as you can so in terms of a modified low histamine diet because it can be really overwhelming pulling out all histamine containing foods I usually start really simple so just start with, you know, making sure people aren't having any caffeine, pulling off all alcohol as well, and really reducing um, canned, processed or cured meats and fermented foods, because histamine is also produced as a product of fermentation. Um, in that process as well, if people are able to, also removing dairy for a time as well, if they have good um, quality, if they're able to substitute in other foods, which can ensure they're meeting their calcium requirement and everything else. And sometimes that's just enough to help reduce burden of symptoms. If that's still not working, usually go one step further and pull people off um, other foods that are fermented. So um, any sort of fermented grains, so like sourdough bread, uh, you know, anything that might contain vinegar in it, um, you know, removing, um, you know, food, any sort of like major food additives and chemicals and also high sugar foods, vegetable oils and processed foods, which negatively impact the gut microbiome. And then from there, um, usually if that's not enough to get things working or if people have capacity to, that's when, you know, reducing some of those high histamine foods like banana, pineapple, um, you know, spinach for some people, eggplant for others and gluten containing foods as well. And wheat products can also really help too. So there are ways to do a low histamine diet. Like if you can't do it all at once and you still you're doing some things and they're not giving you the relief that you want. Um, there are some other dietary changes that you can make as well to help to just gradually reduce the histamine load in your diet. Also to note, just, uh, you know, with nutrient deficiencies, if you're taking something like zinc and using vitamin C, it's going to take a while to build up your stores. So this isn't a quick process that's going to happen overnight. Unfortunately, it does take a little bit of time for these sorts of changes to add up and for those shifts to happen in the body, and especially when we've got multiple things going on. We do want to work quite slowly and gently and not rock the boat too much. Absolutely. That's, that's a really great overview. And I, I like your kind of step by step approach that makes a lot of sense, I guess, given what little um, kind of layperson's knowledge I have of trying to kind of work through some of these issues myself. And um, yeah, you just, it, that's a really, you know, interesting approach. And it, se and it, it seems to make sense, because it, it can be so disruptive to 
radically change the diet, but to kind of, you know, try from a certain place that will help a certain percentage. And, you know, I'm sure it depends on the severity of the symptoms, you know, at issue too, Mm -hmm. and all of that, but having different stages to go through. So you're not just kind of, you know, yanking everyone's or someone's comfort food and everything they're eating and kind of putting them on a completely new diet, you know, for most cases, again, like, like I was saying, I'm sure there are instances where some people just kind of really need to go on a more restrictive diet, but it's hard. It's really hard. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're starting to see, you know, here in the U S restaurants will put when an item is gluten-free or vegan. And so we're starting to see more of that. Um, but you know, I've never seen FODMAP or histamine, you know, anywhere on a, um, a menu or, you know, at the grocery store or anything. So, you know, hopefully these kind of discussions will, will pave the way for people to be, more informed about what we're eating and what 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 effects those foods have in our bodies. Definitely. And it's even hard with those sorts of foods because, for instance, um, as you're kind of saying, it's, you know, incredibly tricky just to, you know, yank all of these foods out of our diet because what do we replace them with? And especially, I guess, navigating things like low FODMAP diets or gluten-free diets, a lot of those replacement foods are, you know, for example, gluten-free bread is mostly refined tapioca starch. So they're refined um, starches with refined oils in them, which again, don't have the best impact on the gut microbiome either. So it's all a case of, you know, making sure you're getting enough support and making sure that, um, you know, just gradually and slowly, just improving general diet quality as well and making sure that any substitutes you do use, um, you know, are going to be you know, for example, instead of using rice, seeing if you can change, you know, the dish into something that might include something like brown rice that's going to impact the gut. But of course, um, all of those changes I understand as well, depending on where you're at with your health, can be extremely overwhelming. So just taking things one step at a time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for that great overview of MCAS hypermobility and diet. You're welcome. Thanks very much for Savita Sandhu for joining us today. We learned so much. And if you want to follow Savita, you can follow her at Hypermobile Dietitian, and that's dietitian with a T instead of a C for our American listeners on Instagram. That's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. As always, feel free to reach out to us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes or topics. And thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye.